Welcome to the Sacred Body Podcast, where we investigate trauma resolution, healing, sex, and intimacy, and motherhood, all through the lens of the sacred and wise nature of the body. This season, we're focusing a little bit more on inherited trauma and how our inherited history has impacted our individual paths to wholeness. So if you're here, you're on a journey, and I welcome you every part of you to the conversation. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with my friend, Ralph De La Rosa, Ralph is an internationally published author, a psychotherapist in private practice, and seasoned meditation teacher. Ralph himself is also a PTSD, depression, and addiction survivor, and his work is inspired by the tremendous transformation he has experienced through meditation, yoga, and therapy. Today, I sit down with Ralph to talk about his latest book, Don't Tell Me to Relax, Emotional Resilience in the Age of Rage, Feels, and Freakouts by Shambhala Publications. And we spend time talking about the message of this book, the unique presentation of themes in this book, Ways to Wellness, and Ralph's own history with recovery. I hope you enjoy. (sighs) I'm really honored to be talking to you at this moment in time, because it feels, um, well, it's, it's very personal. It's significant for me to be reconnecting with you and rekindling a friendship because it is so intense, just like collectively that, that (laughs) collective field that we can be conscious of to varying degrees. There's just like so much pervasive grief and anxiety and I have always appreciated about you um, a fearlessness and acknowledging that and mm-hmm. stepping toward it, and also such like such a ferocity of love where it's like, and let's connect and like let's go for a walk and get some food and um, to. In my experience of you, you've always had a strong sense of the necessity of being with reality as it is, which is often chaotic. And also, like, I need to take care of myself and let's also have a good time for this next hour evening that we're together. So welcome to the podcast, Ralph. And um, I just love you so much. And I'm so happy to talk about this book. It's wonderful. Ah, all love is certainly returned, Stacey. And it's really, it's really good to be here with you. And um, yeah, you you used the word fearless to describe me a moment ago. And um, I will just say that it's more the thing you said later, that it's out of necessity, you know? It's out of necessity that we uh, kind of must uh, work with the fear and the pain and the grief and the, you know, outrage and what have you that that we are confronted with right now. I don't feel like I have a choice because my, my, Without capital T truth, I mean, where where are we? You know, as as awakened and conscious people, um, trying to walk through the what I've been calling the forest fire of right now. You know, 
but yeah, it's really good to be here with you. And thank you for the gracious introduction for sure. Absolutely. I want to just name the book um, that we're going to be talking about. Don't tell me to relax. Emotional resilience in the age of rage, feels, and freakouts. <laughs> it's so wonderful to have this book uh, in the world right now. And I'm really curious as I was reading through it, I was like, God, like I know that the editing and the publishing process is takes a while. And it's so like eerily relevant to immediately what we're going through right now as a yeah. country. Um, your acknowledgement of systemic racism, oppression, misogyny, uh, classism, ableism, all of it. Um, so I'm curious when the writing process for this book really got underway and what was your experience of having the manuscript in and like watching the world unfold? Yeah, it's both eerie and heartbreaking actually that the relevance of this work has increased, uh, you know, exponentially. Um, Shambhala Publications came to me and said, hey, listen, we think, you know, the world is going to be in crisis and uh, coming, you know, approaching the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. And we really think, you know, a lot of people, there's going to be a high stress and a lot of outrage and a lot of, you know, God knows what going on in the world. And we really want a book for meditators who, you know, care about justice and who, you know, want to read something about exploring spiritual practice in these times, in this specific context, but that isn't about like acceptance or serenity, you know, which acceptance and serenity are wonderful, but you know, does that speak to where we are right now and when, when we're faced with things that are <clears throat> totally unacceptable? Yeah. And so I, you know, said yes, and um, of course, and um, the manuscript was actually written in the space of two months. Um, I just cleared my calendar for, I think, August and September of last year, and um, got it all on paper. Then we spent four months editing, and we put the final touches and sent it to print um, the very week that lockdowns began in America. Wow. And it was just like, holy moly. Um, now I wish it was more staunch and more fierce and more, you know, there's there's moments where I'm like trying to not be too intense in that book because it's, uh, we just thought we would be freaking out over the election. We right. didn't know there would be this whole important social uprising, you know, all of the calamity that coronavirus has brought. And um, so I'm, I'm triply glad that this book exists now, you know, to help how people walk through this. Yeah, and and while I do hear that, like, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't have held back or I wish this <laughs> had been a little more intense, like, this is very clear. And I felt in reading it, like, as I would consider myself a fairly seasoned practitioner, at least, like, I've heard a lot of teachers mm -hmm. um, and you do an excellent job of, of making this book accessible to everyone. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I heard you say that they asked you to write a book for meditators, but like, I really got the sense that this book is for everyone and does such a skillful job um, grounding these practices. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you do an excellent job explaining 
on all the levels, like just the instinctual human level, the neuroscientific level, the spiritual practice level. Um, and it was a real pleasure to read primarily because like in my view, based on my vocabulary, this is like a truly tantric text and approach to being a human person in that it's like, you know, this is not black and white. It's both and. It has to be all of it. You have, and, and using those words acceptance and serenity, it's like, that is your, that is your gift at the end of your <laughs> fearless waltz into the forest fire. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit about this approach, this view that you're offering people of being a socially social justice focused practitioner. Yeah, I mean, it's really a new era of integration that we are confronted with. And one thing that I am definitely inspired to the nth degree by right now that's happening socially in our world is with you know Black Lives Matter and, and, and all the uprisings and calls for justice that we're seeing is for the very first time in my life, we are getting at a widespread and mainstream level that there has to be a revolution of consciousness as well, that the inner and outer must match, they must intertwine if we are to have any hope of of a movement for justice going in the right direction, being informed by the right energies, and um, for to then take root in a in a meaningful way. And so that's that's really the view is that that inner and outer go together. Mm -hmm. And that's a simple statement that uh, connotes a very complex situation because we are the most sophisticated, you know, our human bodies are the most sophisticated known thing in the in the universe. And we don't even have science on what the mind really is. You know, yogis have have uh, more information, more intel on the mind, you know, but um, and then we look out at our society, which is this vast and layered and complex situation as well. And um, and I, I, I truly believe that that our spiritual practice has to speak to all facets of it and, it, and, and that it's meant to, that it's always been meant to. It's never been about stress reduction. It's never been about optimization. It's always been about at all of our engagements inside and all of our engagements with society at the exact same time, you know? Well, I think that's sort of the, you talk a lot about the commodification of spirituality and spiritual practices such as yoga and meditation. And in the quick sell version of those practices, it has to be very much like, I promise you that by the end of your 40 days, you're going to never be stressed again and keep the weight off forever and have more money in your bank account. And what is true about being a human person alive in the world is that it's a steady ebb and flow of all of the chaos, a brief bit of calm and having the capacity to be with the chaos depends on your capacity to cultivate calm and just sort of, I mean, there's the acceptance, right? Like this is not a fixed static state that I'm achieving through my 40 minute sit in the morning or, you know, five minutes if you can manage it if you're a mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so 
I think there's some real beauty in this very clear um, assertion here, um, which unfortunately, it, you know, again, it's not the quick sell because it is like, you know, you have to be with the shitty things that you've seen and done and that happened to you. And that doesn't mean that you fixate on it. You use that word um, specifically in talking about anger. And we'll get to that in a second. But oh, yeah. um, the integration piece and the both and. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you, well, you speak a little bit to your, your history, but when did you kind of really get the sense that it has to be? You have to be with the shitty parts and cultivate some calm for yourself. Yeah, I think it comes down to trauma, really. Um, with regards to the first half of what you were just identifying with us wanting quick fixes, I think that that's actually a trauma-oriented situation in which, you know, so many of us are left with a hole in our hearts that gives way to a hunger for that silver bullet, for that quick fix, for that one mantra, or that one darshan, or whatever it is that's going to uh, do the trick for us. And for me, I mean, part of that choicelessness of meeting the difficulty inherent in our lives is that's, um, I come from a, a, a trauma background. I come from PTSD and depression and heroin addiction and um, uh, some pretty deep woundings that I shouldn't have survived. And, um, and the only thing that ever worked, and I tried it all, uh, was learning how to have difficult emotions, feel them in my body, and then stay right there. But not like you were just saying, not in like some raw... Uh, re-traumatizing kind of way but like that's actually when we can hold that and all of us have a different capacity to hold that you know which can grow and change as we do the work but when we hold that the opportunity is to find compassion in the face of our sadness or our pain or whatever it is and in that way um, you're actually in that moment if you can have compassion for your wounded inner child, for example, you're, you're touching enlightenment in that moment. You're touching the compassion is the Buddha nature and the wounding is your relative existence here in this incarnation now. And that is the definition of an enlightened person is somebody who is both situated in awakening and completely in touch with the relative world at the exact same time, somehow. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the only thing that's ever worked in terms of healing that, that, that sticks, that lasts, that like, you know, I'm not like three years later seeing a different therapist going, how are we back here again? <laughs> how are all my relationships in the garbage can again, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for this simultaneity uh, <laughs> such an awkward word but it's appropriate for now the simultaneity of being here in the world and in this deep deeply internal nearly invisible space within ourselves and working with trauma there is this key component of perception right, right? so we can i think 
I mean, I think that's sort of like the biggest trauma that everyone experiences. Like, this is my reality. This is what I'm experiencing. And someone goes, that's not what's happening. Mm. of our experience and having to go through the grief of like, no one is going to validate this, but me. Yeah. 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 I mean that when you say that, what I think of is not only in the micro kind of personal sense of we live in a world that tells us, you know, stiff upper lip and just get over it and um, calm down and, you know, you're overreacting or whatever. But also I think about Portland and and some of the protests where, you know, these federal troops have have now been sent. And, um, And can you imagine if instead of more suppression of these voices, at the systemic level, our leaders, you know, kind of got down eye level with us and said, hey, you guys are really upset. <laughs> Would you like to tell us more about that? More about why? Do you think we can maybe like listen to each other and work this thing out? And suddenly I'm a five-year-old throwing a tantrum who's just like burst into tears because somebody's actually asking me how I feel. Right, right. Yeah. That would be an, an example of institutionalized caring, right. which is, I really think, the answer. Yeah, I had a conversation recently with a loved one about uh, police, policing, and um, like, oh, well, you know, lot, lots to say there, but what I want to say is this um, idea that's held by many of like okay well what if the police just like don't go to work tomorrow and suddenly there's like all these murderers on the street and it's chaos and it's like actually we've proven in our country time and time again when policing is reduced or transformed to be community care work crime goes down yeah when policing is militarized violent crime skyrockets mm-hmm. that's what you know what you i heard you just describing this institutionalized caregiving like everyone here is a necessary component of the whole yeah yeah and i think i think with regards to the call for defunding the police um I think that that name is a little bit of a misnomer because it's never been about like, let's get rid of the police per se, at least for most of us. But it's more like the cops are doing too much too. Their jobs are too intense too. We wanna see that die down. We wanna see them only have to protect and serve, not answer addiction related calls, not answer mental health related calls, not be social service workers and, and you know, for jails to be mental institutions and, and what have you, right? Or treatment centers would be the more appropriate term. Um, it's, it's in everybody's best interest that we create an institute, a, a, a caring society that has room for us all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's, it's actually in the other sides, quote unquote, the other sides, best interest that we uh, move in this direction as well, you know, so yeah. I've quoted this, um, I've quoted this several times uh, over the last two years since I've seen it. It was a, a panel of 
people from around the world talking about what's next for feminism and and mm-hmm. who was part of the clinton white house and i don't remember her exact role but that's you know uh her her significance on this panel um and she was being asked like what is next and it, her short answer was when we value care as a fundamental part of a successful society then things will change when we acknowledge that regardless of gender, someone is going to be asked and required to care for a family member who's ill or has just had a child or is a single parent or whatever else is going on. And until we value that and have that built into all of our institutions as this is something we allow for and make room for, mm-hmm. we'll continue to confront these same inequities, these same wounds over and over. Yeah, and I mean, so here's the integrative piece, is we can take that, which I agree with 100%, and we can turn it inwards. Mm -hmm. Because there is a society that lives inside of us. Like, how many different voices do I have, you know, that I call thoughts that course through me, or different emotions, or in what ways am I a different person at 7 in the morning than I am at 10 p.m. at night? Or, you know, um, we, we... we have so many different parts of us inside too. And, you know, is our inner society or our inner family a place where all the parts of us are accepted and loved and listened to? Do we get down eye level with our depressed parts or our rageful parts? And, and just like I so wish, you know, uh, uh, our leaders would do with the protests, we need to do that inside too like hey depressed part of me what's going on i see that you're really upset can i give you some love today as opposed to that's unspiritual or i'm not dealing with or i don't have time for that and and i need to get it together and go to work or whatever um there's there's a there's a crossover piece here where the outer is reflecting how fragmented we are within ourselves too. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's a real be the change kind of situation yeah. where the more we radically love uh, all of our parts, even the parts that seem unlovable or scream that we're unlovable, you know, how, how can we expect our society to, to evolve in that direction as well? And I have a little theory about why turning towards ourselves with that compassion or, you know, doing trauma work, even working with addiction is so hard, Mm. Um, which is that, you know, of course, doing the work is challenging, but there's such, you know, it's like the accumulation of grief that this basic need wasn't met or was in fact violated. The grief that stands in between me and my compassionate self is so great. And there's so few resources for being with grief um, that we just sort of stop and turn a, turn away and excuse it as like, I don't have time for that, or that's bullshit, or that's, you know, too airy-fairy, or, you know, whatever. I'm over it. Mm-hmm. Thing. The past is the past. The past, exactly. Oh. I love that part. Um, so, what are your thoughts on this? And just as a as a little side note, not to derail your answer, but what you were yeah. speaking 
to before is that your parts work like can we name that as parts work yeah excellent yeah absolutely um yeah yeah so so the parts work piece really comes from something so we'll just name it uh called internal family systems which is a very cutting edge and radical uh form of evidence-based psychotherapy that uh, can be uh, utilized in one-on-one -on -one setting and also brought into a meditation practice. Um, you can do this kind of therapy on yourself and that is a lot of what I uh, teach people to do in my online courses and what have you. And you know within that model one, one understanding is that the parts of us that hold grief, yes like it accumulates you know, and this is the proof that we are made of parts that we're, we, as Walt Whitman said, uh, we contain multitudes and we're not a, a monolith unto ourselves, you know, is that those parts of you can hold grief and accumulate it and somehow be held at bay. And you could be in denial about that part of you, you know, being walled off for years or even decades. And, um, and so that accumulation which you're absolutely right there is a buildup of everything that we don't heal everything that we don't face you know then you know that's that's what we're talking about is a very vulnerable part of us holding our pain shame and fear and then we have other parts of us that in traditional psychotherapy are called defense mechanisms you know and our defensive parts are interested in our lives not coming unglued <laughs> And how many of us have a sense of like, if I even open that Pandora's box, it's gonna annihilate me in some way. I might go back into some sort of eternal grief that like never ends. And that's a very daunting uh, kind of inner situation. Not unworkable, not unworkable. And we can even talk about how that can become workable too. Well, you have, um this wonderful list of the key factors of resilience mm. and i just like to read them because this was a really like like there's so much here <laughs> that i could just stay here with them um and if you don't mind i'll read them and then we can kind of go into this workability option sure. for doing parts work um, yeah. the key factors of resilience community Show me who you hang with and I'll show you who you are. Identity, where your head goes, the rest of you follows. Emotional literacy, recognize what you're feeling when you feel it, put language around it. Very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Emotional intelligence, pause, unblend, get curious, open the doorway to new choices. I love that little sequence. Self-talk, speak to yourself only as you would to another person, another person who deserves a baseline of respect and mercy. Spirituality, develop a rich and meaningful inner life, connect to what matters daily. Make meaning of your experience, look for the lessons, let crisis push you to dig deeper and get stronger, let your challenges inspire you to help others and resourcefulness. Hard times are a call to get beyond the box creative. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> of work, right? Like that, that whole list is like, mm -hmm. it's 
one step at a time, but it's also so useful because I feel like it gives me this sense of, you know, sometimes working in that way of like really digging deep and making meaning. It's like, I can't do that all day, every day for the next six months. Like we do need breaks, but it doesn't mean we just like stop doing our internal work. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that was a part of having this like list of resources, but also there's um, some real like practicality in that. Yeah. And I didn't think of that list either. This is uh, very researched, very well researched. There's a tremendous amount of, of studies that have been done on human resilience and mm-hmm. what helps one person bounce back from a situation that another person might be completely destroyed by. Yeah. Um, you know, and these are, these are some of the factors, uh, to some of them that, that, that they have found. Um, and it's interesting to think that, um, you know, even if we don't have the, the space, the time, the energy, the fortitude for whatever reason to hang out with our grief or our overwhelm, right? We can still work on our ability to bounce back and it can be fun. Engaging with community is fun, you know, um, uh, finding meaning or connecting to nature, you know, that spiritual peace, connecting to something larger than ourselves, which I, I just go right to the earth with that one. No need to get theistic, you know, just hanging out with a tree or putting your toes in the grass for 20 minutes, you know, goes a long way. So it's not always... Um, that really deep penetrating kind of inner work. Yeah. Yeah. And I talk about in the introduction as well, this concept of pendulation, Mm -hmm. right? That we need to swing back and forth, you know, that we need to go all the way into the shadows and the realness of our lives, you know, but we also need to swing all the way. And I mean, all the way to enjoyment, fun, relaxation, letting go, um, just screwing around and forgetting about it all as well Um, yeah it's been a big piece for me in the last year or so Mm. it's just like who am I outside my work who am I outside the you know all of this process and what have you but interesting how that sort of like innate tendency we have I think as humans I think it's fairly universal to be kind of um, bipolar in this sense of like, it's all or nothing. Like I'm all in it and I'm just like feeling and flaying myself or I'm just like tuned out and dicking around. And even from your, well, my time in a friendship with you when we both lived in in Brooklyn, having a sense of like, just how sort of that behavior stays with us even though the particular points of focus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, you're in school, you're doing all the stuff, you're working on, working on yourself. And sometimes you also just need to like let loose and forget about it <laughs> and do the other thing, do the thing that you said was so bad, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll elucidate one thing that I think doesn't get talked about enough in the, the psychological realm or, or just that something that we need to understand as a society 
is that um, black and white thinking, binary thinking, good, bad, wonderful, terrible, um, that all or nothing piece is actually, uh, is indicative of, of our level of development, right? Wow. So in child development theory, there's all these milestones that are achieved in certain age periods. And if you don't achieve that milestone, it, it, it complicates, it doesn't totally inhibit you growing at the next level. Um, but the, one of the latest milestones uh, for uh, late adolescents, young adults, is uh, developing an ability to hold how complex reality actually is, that there's actually nothing that's totally good, totally bad. It's always a mix. It's always a mix of just and unjust as well, right? It's, it's always a mix of, of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. And um, that's a difficult thing for the human brain to actually acquiesce to because there's so much uncertainty and mystery uh, in, involved in that kind of awareness. And so anytime I see, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, maybe a client who has that all or nothing kind of thinking or people in the socio-political sphere um, across the spectrum, really, you know, we see... Uh, like progressive, what I've come to call progressive policing, you know, this, this tendency to like, hey, that's wrong. The way that you said that was wrong, you know, as opposed to letting ourselves be in the process and educating ourselves and fumbling and making mistakes. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's really indicative of, of something maybe went on uh, later in adolescence or late in your high school years where, where uh, love was missing, some sort of essential nutrient was missing from your life that, that nobody showed you how to hold uh, the complexity that's inherent in our existence. Mm. Yeah, I remember distinctly a, uh, something that you shared on social media about that policing. Mm. Then you were like, like immediately in your own comments, you're like, and here I am making a post. <laughs> like whoa this is this is vulnerable stuff and it's so our tendency like but it, it is I'm so glad that you said what you did about the developmental stages because even when I catch myself in it it does feel very adolescent of like you can't do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it also there's a certain if you pay attention in those moments like there's also a gratification mm -hmm. in there it's it's like a little bit intoxicating totally. right and what that intoxication is is i'm not vulnerable right now i'm safe in feeling right mm. and here we all are in this very vulnerable field together and it's very seductive to the the the, the uh potential to feel right and invulnerable within that is very very seductive yeah and we, we and we won't get away from it. We won't get away from the complexity, though. Yeah, you, you, even in me saying, "Hey, we need to make more room for complexity." There's a certain I'm right, <laughs> and everybody needs to get on my level. That uh, mentality that's mixed in. Yeah. This is a little off topic, or at least like off topic of what I wrote down for wanting to talk to you about. But I think it's still interesting. Um, I'm really interested because you have such a uh, vast 
field of study. Like you've come at psychology, mental health, well-being from so many different angles and lived it and walked it. And um, I'm curious about, you know, within nervous system theory, we're social animals. There's this element of the social nervous system and then this sort of contradictory piece of you know, my understanding, this is coming from the tantric perspective, everything that we can engage with is potentially toxic or medicinal. And the only thing that determines what it will be is how I'm relating to it and like what is actually happening in this moment. So again, there's no black and white, there's no final answer, it evolves. And it's so complex because we are gauging in a way our sense of safety and belonging from each other. And so when there is that difference of like what feels good to me um, could you just speak to that sort of like what has contributed to this sense of like a standard of right and wrong? I mean, I think I have the answer, but <laughs> I just would love to engage that conversation with you. At the level of our nervous system? At the level of our nervous system and particularly like the social nervous system, just giving kind of a primer in that. Yeah. So, so I'll just, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I feel that evolutionarily, and I talk about this, I think, in my, I, my first book, The Monkey is the Messenger, that we, we're kind of at a, a crossroads where there's a particular schism in our, in our nervous systems where, um, where we're just at, at, a, at our growth edge, where things really need to evolve, but our biology is very much trapped in hunter-gatherer times. Uh, so that's important for us to understand is that our uh, biological evolution has cannot move at the pace that our social evolution, you know, where, where things, you know, one app could revolutionize the world in the space of a year, right. you know, and our bodies, you know, take thousands of years to <laughs> adapt. Um, so, so at the level of our biology, we could collapse all of our fundamental needs and drives into three basic things, which is safety, gratification, and belonging. Gratification, which also correlates with learning and growth and, and, and more mature uh, forms of gratification satisfaction. Uh, there's less mature uh, forms of gratification, such as, um, well, I don't want to displeasure, but you know, going after a Snickers bar is not the same thing as getting a master's degree. Um, <laughs> But, but safety, gratification, and belonging, uh, this is everything that we're seeking at all times. And there's you know, many different diverse expressions of those three basic uh, drives, right? And so we need safety. And that is something that we are unconsciously driven by that we're scanning the world for and, and gravitating towards. But here's the schism life is inherently dangerous. And as Helen Keller said, safety is more of a superstition than wow. it is anything that actually exists. It doesn't actually exist if you look at the natural world. There's no such thing. Mm -hmm. And so we have these fundamental drives that are fundamentally wise and, and smart and make sense, very sound. And yet we have a life where we are bound to feel unsafe, where vulnerability is actually where we find strength and growth, where we have this need for gratification, but pain is always, you know, if it's not with us now, it's, it's bound to be at some point. It's just how it is. 
and then the fundamental need for belonging and and yet like how many of us feel so lonely and so abandoned and and um and i think that that i i call it both the crossroads and the and the growth edge because this is what we're working with mm-hmm. right um this is this is where at the biological level like the humans need to uh ingrain a sense of it's okay to not feel safe and up to a certain point and then there's some complexity with that too right like how much vulnerability is too much vulnerability you know when when am i being smart in my vulnerability versus you know not listening to a healthy fear versus a neurotic fear does it yeah we're we're kind of like back at that place of our our fixation on like solving a problem from now until the end of time like (laughs) have our solutions be fixed solidly in and to never have to struggle again Uh, and it's sort of the myth of the american dream like you're going to work really hard and then you're smooth sailing until the day you die and that's just not how yeah life and a human body works yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I think about that vision of the American dream is, you know, it's a coffin. Mm. It's a coffin that we are seduced into lying down in and just saying, here, let me stay here. And then and when it's all over, <laughs> you know, we're right to find me. I'm already ready for you guys. <laughs> you know? I spent all my life savings on my coffin. The safest choice is most often the most lifeless choice. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yet we need safety. That puts us in a very interesting, very interesting situation. <sighs> There's so much that I want to talk to you about. Um, I, I definitely want to touch on what, what I feel because I, I have a strong affinity with her, um, sort of this like guiding force through the book. Kali, who you name and speak to specifically early on, and something, you know, it speaks a little bit to uh, like this this contrast, right, of where we were before in our conversation of culturally how we tend to like really suppress emotional expression, and at the same time we have this like righteousness about our anger and this like hyper volatility that's very much a part of our culture as well and Kali is this epitome of righteous anger that looks very different than how anger is expressed in our culture yeah so I'd love to hear you speak to her and your desire to include her like something so explicitly Mm. in this book yeah, the thing about Kali too is that she's so matted hair and uh, blood dripping from her tongue and and decorated with skulls and severed arms, and it's you know, and yet she's considered so sacred mm-hmm. and so beautiful in the in the Hindu tradition. And I'm thinking of of. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna and Sri Ananda Mahima, the first places, the first uh, uh, teachers whose teachings uh, told me about Kali and how just beautiful and, and captivating they felt that, that she was. And, and that, that um, paradox, mm-hmm. I think, is an important one, you mm-hmm. know? She's blacker than black <laughs> and completely pissed off. 
and completely on a tear as well, but it's not a mindless tear. It's not, um, it's a tear for the right reasons. You know? And there's that beautiful origin story of how, you know, there's this demon God who's trying to take over the universe and trying to avoid a re-election. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, and, and, and is actually more powerful than the gods are on their own. Mm -hmm. And then, so they come together collectively to manifest Kali. And that's also a story that's uh, very germane to our times that we need to come together in that, that, that in that togetherness, there's, there's so much more power, but, um, but that's the source of her anger is that sense of urgency of like, this has to stop now. You know, this has it, and we don't have time. Um, we don't have time. We can't wait. You know, there can't be a, a pontification about tactics. You know, we just got to move. And um, yeah, it felt it felt good to include that as um, a portrait of so-called holiness or sacred energy that does not meet with you know some of the more mainstream uh, images that we receive about well-being. Um, can I tell you a story, actually? Oh, please. Oh, my God. I just, um, I, I'm, I, I'm finishing today a bonus chapter for the book. And um, yeah, uh, and it's a story that I can't believe I didn't tell in that Kali chapter. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a Kali story. But it's a it's about an earthly collie, a grounded collie named Kathleen Hanna, who is yeah. the front woman of you know the riot girl band Bikini Kill that was very, um, uh, very influential for me. The punk singer. Yeah, yeah, her, yeah. Who uh, they made the documentary about Lyme disease about? Yeah. Um, so. I'll tell you the briefest version of it um, that I can, but I went to this show when I was 16, it was like 1993, and Bikini Kill, who was like my favorite band, this like fierce, like feminist uh, 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 band. Uh, and it was a DIY show. We were used to going to these shows that were like maybe 300 kids at max, and it was all underage, you know, most, most people were like, you know, teenagers at these shows. And this one was enormous, absolutely enormous. And um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably close to a thousand kids there. And Bikini Hill starts up and in between songs, we start hearing all, you know, bitch, you slut, you, you know, just dumb whores, all these like terrible, terrible things being screamed at Bikini Hill. This is a feminist, like politically conscious show. And we're going like, what? Wait, what? How is this possible? And anyways, the show goes on and this like actually gets worse and worse. And it says it, soon enough, we start noticing that it's this one particular group of, of boys who'd showed up to specifically hassle the band. And they start pushing girls in the, in the audience or anybody who looks like a girl in the audience uh, uh, around and starts shoving people. And at that point, Kathleen Hanna pulls this total collie move. She stops the song just abruptly and gets crouches down and says, you know, hey, 
I'm holding the microphone. Would any of you guys like to speak into the microphone? Since you came here with so much to say tonight, I'd love to give you the opportunity to say to it to it uh, into the mic. You can you can announce your message to us all. And like the crowd just parted like the Red Sea, and suddenly there's like the, you know these six or eight boys standing there just like screw you, blah blah blah, just every awful name in the book. And she's just like, "What are you afraid of, a girl? Come on up here." And they shoved one of one of their party uh, forward uh, uh, involuntarily. And I remember him looking back like, "What the fuck, you guys?" <laughs> he had no choice. He had to. He had to. You know, go through with it. And so she says, "Ah, you know, finally." And she sticks out the mic and says here tell us what you you know it is you have to say and the boy leans in and opens his mouth and she pops him in the face with that <laughs> and this is you know we're we're most of us are activists at the show most of us are nonviolent activists and this was a very very outrageous act and then what happens next was just life-changing um the boys rush the stage, an army of bouncers come out to protect the stage. And while they're engaging with the bouncers, Kathleen Hanna starts pulling, I have chills as I'm telling this, starts pulling one by one uh, girls up out of the crowd and just, you know, singing the song and the band's playing, but she's pulling women up on stage. And then, you know, these, these uh, female and female identified bodies who were like actively being targeted and victimized and berated by these boys. They went from that reality and in one second to dancing on stage with their favorite band. And then Bikini Kill ends that show uh, uh, on this huge stage that is absolutely shoulder to shoulder packed with Ugh. every female body that, that, that could possibly fit on that stage. And it's just like, what an image, you know? But an image of one ferocious act that that uh, complicates the notion of nonviolent ethics. Yeah. Talk about that if you want. But it created this opportunity and this empowerment and this sense of solidarity that hundreds of people, including me, uh, carried for are carrying now, you know, for a lifetime. And that's Kali energy right there is breaking the rules in a really smart, good, sane kind of way. Really specific way. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I think this quote is attributed to Sri Ramakrishna, but I heard it through Sally Kempton mm -hmm. and learning about Kali, mm -hmm. something to the effect of, you know, she appears terrifying. Mm -hmm. She's only terrifying to those who aren't willing to see the truth. That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. I mean, it gives me chills every time I think it, say it, and it's, it, you know, as I'm reading about her, listening to the story, it's this. It's like, tell me, tell me that action wasn't justified or necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just like, to go back to Black Lives Matter, you know, so many of their leaders have expressed like, yeah, nonviolence. We're down with it. That's what we want. That's our goal. But nonviolence on the part of who? Right. You can't demand nonviolence from those in a defensive position mm -hmm. without demanding it with those who are inciting it first. You know, so so yeah. Can stand here and be beaten like that's. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's not nonviolence. That is idiotic. Right. You know? I mean, I think about that punk show and like, what if Kathleen Hanna hadn't intervened and she had like begged the bouncers to please do their jobs or something else, you know, how many people would have been brutalized and victimized? Totally. And the reminder, I mean, I think it's essential and with all of these, in all of these spaces, whether it's a racist space or a misogynist space or a classist space or, you know, where there's, um, this contradictory standard set of like, anyway, we're, what we're talking about. Um, and just to be able to acknowledge the hypocrisy of like, I'm standing here fully present, welcoming a different kind of dialogue, welcoming engagement as a human being. You need to treat me like a human being before that becomes possible. Mm. Standing here asserting myself as a human being and with regards to this specific event, it's like mm -hmm. this, this whole notion of like showing up to intimidate and be violent. It's like, well, guess what? I'm not a helpless victim. You come at me, I'm going to pop you in the mouth. Mm. So mm. now what will you do with that information? And even like, um, gosh, I can go on and on about this, but <laughs> so glad that you're adding this story. And it, you know, where where I just kind of like to wrap up our conversation because I want everyone to read your book. I mm. think it's rich. It's wonderful. I'm so happy to have been gifted this book um, and happy it will be in the world. Mm. But I you know, your story, some of your story is shared throughout the book and your story is really um, inspiring to me. It's complex and specific to the times that we're living in. I just would love for you to speak a bit about um, the ethnic and cultural background that you come from and how relevant that was, was to you, was not, and how that's becoming a different part of your story. Ah, yeah. So talk about holding complexity, right? And things not being black or white. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I've always lived in the gradients. <laughs> always. I say you were a gender dropout. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to call myself. <laughs> Great, perfect. I'm a gender dropout. I just decline. <laughs> mm. Fair not to say, <laughs> or my new label is in between being. Yum. Yeah, yeah, because gender queer doesn't quite, I don't know, it just doesn't land with me. But yeah, no, I grew up um, in a Mexican home uh, with my mom and my two sisters, who I was, I think, 13 by the time I realized, oh, they're actually my half sisters because they come from a different dad, mm. full blooded Mexican. But my dad was full-blooded. Um, his side of the family originates from uh, Sweden and Germany. And, but he didn't raise me. I was raised as, and, and I, I look white. My name is Ralph. <laughs> I sound like a white boy. You know, I got a lot of his genes. And so, you know, I have this white passability. But I grew up in a beans and rice home from, you know, 10 miles away from the Mexican border where we would, you know, cross over to get lunch on Sundays. 
you know, and um, I grew up in a bilingual home and was uh, such a pinche flojo, it's such a, a lazy person that, that I, I refused to learn Spanish growing up, you know, and then also uh, just with the gender piece, I just didn't get it. I mean, uh, and maybe it's a little bit uh, conditioned in that I grew up, I'm socialized by uh, cis women mm -hmm. uh, who felt infinitely safer than the first uh, cis man that I that I knew. Maybe that had something to do with it, but it was also thrust into a public school system, having this very feminine sensibility of, about me. And when I started being attacked for it and maligned for it and socially excluded for it and all the way up to some very violent experiences that I briefly mentioned in the book, um, I don't know where the hell this came from, but something in me, even as like a six-year-old going through this was just like, I'm not wrong. Everybody else is wrong. What do you mean I need to be a certain way just because I'm a boy, you know, or just because I'm in this, you know, male sexed body. Uh, what do you mean? Like, like I should, I'm the one who's weird. Well, so what if I'm weird? Why, why does that mean I get attacked? Why is it, you know, the big thing, uh, growing up, especially uh, being named Ralph in the time of, of Ralph Macchio in the Karate Kid movie, was why don't, we, why don't you go to karate classes and learn how to defend yourself against these creeps? And I would like look at these adults and be like, why is that my responsibility? Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from, but uh, <laughs> I didn't bow. Um, but sitting here now, you know, I, I spent four months living in Mexico last year um, in part uh, wanting to embrace that, that aspect of my heritage more and get to know that aspect of my heritage more. Um, I had designs on becoming more bilingual. I failed miserably. <laughs> um, it, hmm. There's a piece here around um, internalized oppression mm. and the way that it works on us unconsciously, the way that oppressive forces work on us unconsciously. Um, I mean, I work with, with, trans people who hate that they're trans or you know like like people who hate maybe the color of their skin sometimes you know this is um this goes on or um or it goes on i know in mexican families this goes on where lighter skinned mexican people will have prejudice against darker skinned mexican people right and um and it's just it adds so many layers to be kind of in between in these ways to consider racism the way that racism against others lives in me the way that i've internalized racism and that could even be pointed at unconsciously uh against my own family or um you know it certainly lives in my own family as well it lives in every family in some iteration mm -hmm. um it it 
it gives me, I think what I'm really trying to say is it gives me profound respect for how complex the work of uprooting the way that society lives in us and the way that we're all racist, we're all misogynists, we're all ableists. Um, it's complex and there's no answer. There's no answer. It's a puzzle that can't be solved. It's a puzzle that is not meant to be solved, but is rather to be wrestled with mm. and to be grappled with and to struggle with it and to question it and, you know, to work, work the clay in your hands, but never really arrive at a final shape. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pulling that all together into the point I was trying to make as nicely as I want to, but I think you, you get it at this point. I do, and I also like that it's a bit um, muddy because yeah. it lends, I, I hope, I feel comfort um, to just this process of acknowledging our own internalized oppression, our own internalized racism. Um, I mean, I can't tell you how many and there are many Mexican or half first generation immigrant friends I have, you know, their, their parent never spoke that language in the house. And at this point, it's like this weird sort of, you know, I'm passing, we're American, and it, it is evidence of this, um, you know, it is evidence of white supremacy. Like, if you can pass, pass because otherwise it's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. and then you write beautifully about this, and I, I will misquote you. I'm not trying to quote you directly, but like the bodies that move through space and time with a lot of internalized trauma and a lot of privilege and that dynamic, how complicated it is, how the privilege sort of, um, well, well, maybe you can speak to it. Um, the role that the privilege plays in exacerbating the trauma and almost like, compelling it outwards against others mm -hmm. right yeah i mean privilege is really this is not totally but but it's it's about access right about access to resources it's about access to having a voice that's considered valid and worthy of listening to by others and what have you um yeah, I mean, how many how many times do we hear, you know, I don't have white privilege, I've had it bad too. I was heckled in school, you know, I, I'm passing as white, you know, but I went to, I grew up in a town that was 70% Mexican and that was the population of my school and getting called white boy and cracker and all of that stuff. Yeah, that happened to me too. And there's a way in which that I could take that and, 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 and it, and uh, mix it with all the other ways that I was bullied around gender, et cetera, and say, well, I've had it hard too. You know, I don't have privilege. I don't have this white privilege that you guys are talking about. I don't have this male privilege that you guys are talking about, which I do. I pass as traditionally male now more than ever in my life, and, uh, um, and I get benefit from it. But there's a way in which that I, it would be very easy to say, but I've suffered too. And that's not, that's not what privilege means. Privilege isn't whether or not you've suffered or suffered at the hands even of your personal demographics. It's 
about that access because mm -hmm. the truth is is that my trauma took me into straight up running the streets and scoring heroin multiple times a day and never once was I arrested you know and yes I had to go to a rehab where I was you know I was so poor and destitute that I went to a free rehab that was basically uh, uh, an early release uh, prison program. Wow. So I, I went in there with some, you know, I was there with some, some real convicts and people who had really been into some things, but you know, um, but I still got in and I was still able to utilize the resources there more uh, readily um, because my trauma uh, history didn't include these layers of race or uh, or uh, deeper queerness uh, and what have you. Um, so, so, you know, going back to that uh, list of the, the robust predictors of resilience, one thing I'm careful to say before I introduce that list in the book is that the some of the biggest predictors of resilience are race, <laughs> class, yeah. uh, uh, biological sex, um, you know, that, that, the, yeah, that, that, that uh, bolster our chances of bouncing back from trauma as well. Yeah. Hmm. We, can, we can continue on for hours. I feel like, <laughs> I feel the same. And um, yeah, I feel the same. Thank you for being so generous, um, sending me the book. You're so generous in the book. Um, mm -hmm. really, I really got that sense. Um, it felt felt really good to read it. It, fe it feels like such a resource um, because of because of how you are. It's so um, nice to have a very explicit sense of who you are and also the more kind of nuanced quirky cat jokes <laughs> your punk rock references um but i want to make sure people know how to find you how to access your work and don't forget to mention spiritual bowie memes because that might be your greatest contribution to humanity <laughs> find you ralph yeah, so on Instagram, it is Ralph De La Rosa is my main account. Um, I do have a, a jokey account called Spiritual Bowie Memes that are mostly David Bowie memes that I make and when I'm in that mood. I also uh, have a, an Instagram account called Compassion Strong. Um, that is really, um, I, I put that into a different uh, Instagram account because not everybody wants to see that I'm on this uh, funny idiosyncratic uh, journey of athleticism for the first time in my life. Uh, I, in my 40s, um, I am attempting to audition for the television show American Ninja Warrior next year. Yeah. <laughs> I want to get on TV as a trauma survivor and an addiction survivor who, with no athletic background and say, you can go way further than you think you can. You know? um, and so that those are places to find me on Instagram. And then I'm very Googleable. Um, RalphDeLaRosa.com would be my uh, website. And there's um, lots of free meditations on SoundCloud and YouTube and Spotify and uh, Insight Timer and, and all of that good stuff. So. And you have a couple of courses. 
I do. Um, I have uh, uh, two, I have a foundational course and an advanced course. They're both very meaty. Um, they're not quick fixes at all. <laughs> Uh, Chrysalis is a, a three-part series. It's three six-week courses, so it's eight weeks, 18 weeks total. Um, and uh, that in, uh, the three phases are embodied presence, redefining self-love, and transforming trauma. And then for folks who complete that, that still want to hang out with me uh, even longer, um, I have something called Coming Home, which is a 14-week deep dive into utilizing the technology of parts work in the space of meditation. So how do we access our emotions and use those as a catalyst um, for, for compassion and healing in our lives, basically. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. You're amazing as well. I really appreciate everything that you're putting out in the online sphere as well. Really, really awakened, integrative stuff. So mirror work, baby. Yeah, it's so um, it's such a blessing mm. to be connected to you. And I am really grateful for you sharing yourself through your writing, through your courses and spending some time here on the podcast with me and yeah. I will make sure everything is in print that you just said so people can find it easily. I highly recommend all of Ralph's classes and work. And until the next time, my friend. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate you and this opportunity to reconnect after all these years. Yeah. Me too. Beautiful. Um, can I Thank you so much for joining us today. If you like this episode, please leave a comment, please share through all your channels, and you also have the opportunity to make a donation to ensure that these amazing conversations continue with ease. I appreciate you being here. I'm curious to hear how this conversation has impacted you, and I hope that you'll join us again.